Ephesians chapter 6, coming on the final stretch. Um, and so let's just read it. The f- nine verses are printed in your bulletin. I'm only going to get through five this morning. We're going to be talking on, it's going to sound boring, but I don't think it is, children obeying your parents. And next week we're going to deal with slaves obeying their masters. What do you think of that, you know? So uh, I was going to deal with both this morning. That's why the title, I think the title is, what is the title? Parents, parents on parenting and slavery as if there was a difference or something. But uh, next week we'll deal with the slavery part of it. All the parents should have said amen at that point because once you have kids, Mary, know this, you are a slave. (laughs) Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Amen. Honor your father and mother, which is the first command with a promise. The promise is, quote, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. In other words, you want to live? Obey your parents. Fathers, <laughs> do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your presence here this morning. I thank you, Lord God, just for the joy of worshiping you and getting together. Lord, I thank you that church is so much fun. Uh, God, it's such a kick living for you and seeing you do great things. Uh, Lord, I, I just thank you for that. I thank you for the freedom that we have here, for the reality that we have, Lord God, the uh, acceptance of, of each other as we are, Lord. I thank you for the freedom from pretense and show. I, I just thank you for that, Lord. I thank you most of all, Lord, for your anointing, which is what alone transforms singing into worship and what alone turns babbling into preaching. And so, Lord, I, I pray, God, that you take this babbling and make it preaching, Lord. Make it your word. Infuse it with your spirit. God, most of all, I pray that it'd be a time that would really lift a burden off of certain people who have been slimed in the past. God, who need to be set free. And they've been slimed in a way that colors their perception of you and colors their perception of church and who they are and a lot of things. And so, Lord God, let this be a freedom morning, I pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Praise God. God's anointing is powerful. I feel his presence here. There's not a whole lot of problem, I don't believe, in understanding what this verse is talking about. There are times when... Uh, when you're dealing with a passage and you need to do a little background stuff, get into the Greek and things of that sort to understand what the verse is talking about. This is not one of those passages. This is, I think, fairly obvious. Which is why initially, early on this week, I was wondering, I even consulted some friends, what am I going to preach on here? Uh, <laughs> someone give me a little juice here. Children, obey your you know, parents. Now, the word obey has many different meanings in different contexts. Let's investigate those. The meaning of the verse, I think, is pretty plain. Kids, children, he's talking to people who are at least old enough to understand what he's saying and make a decision about it. He doesn't say, parents, make your kids obey. That's what you do when they're toddlers growing up. When they get older, he talks to the children and says, obey your parents and honor them. That's pretty self-evident. Then he says, there's a promise attached to this. We're going to talk about this later on. So that you may live well and have a long life. Then he says, parents... He talks to the fathers here because in the first century, there is a little background here, he, he only mentions fathers because in the first century, the only one who had any authority to do disciplining was the father. And so the mother was out of the picture, so he says, fathers, don't exacerbate your children, don't provoke them. It can apply to both parents today, and what he's basically saying there is this, not, ever, not saying don't ever make them angry, because if you're doing your job as a parent, they're going to get angry sometimes, but simply don't let that be entrenched. Don't embitter them. Don't egg them on. Don't let anger characterize your relationship. There. That's all there's to be said about that. And then it says, train them up in the ways of the Lord. Train, train them up in the ways of the Lord. One thing to say about that is this. 
I found that to be very hard to do. <laughs> I had an idea of, uh, of, of uh, what family devotions would be like, and it didn't happen. <laughs> uh, some of you can say amen to that. Come on, don't leave me up here alone. It's really hard. You, you, you know, you sit down. This is what I always struggled with, is, is you sit down to have a little devotion, and your little boy is acting out and throwing peas and stuff because you have to end of supper. And what do you do? Do you blast him and say, we're going to have devotion! Or, or, do you, or, or do you say, well, okay, listen, you're not ready for it right now. Because if you do, okay, you know, you're not ready for it now, then, then you feel like you're minimizing the importance of doing devotions. If you scream at him and make him do the devotions, you're, you're putting a bad taste in his mouth about reading the Bible and talking about God. Isn't parenting tough? Or, or, or saying goodnight prayers. I don't want to say goodnight prayers. Well, okay, what do I do here? Do I say, you've got to say goodnight prayers. I had to do it when I was a kid, and you've got to do it. The Bible says to do it. And the Bible says obey your parents. Do you do that? Okay, Dad, I love you, Jesus. <laughs> or, or do you teach grace? Okay, look, just you know, know that God loves you anyways. It's really hard. And now you're saying, okay, so give us a solution. I don't have one. Ask the Holy Spirit to lead you and guide you. It's a case-by-case kind of thing. You've got to try to balance it. Uh, you know, show how important it is, mainly by how you live. What I've found is that principles have to be caught more than taught. And, and so if you live it, you demonstrate passion for it, uh, gradually they catch that. Your actions mean a whole lot more than your words. And uh, the other thing is to try to, you, you trick them into Bible studies. Uh, you got to be kind of creative with this, but that's true. You throw out little teasers. You know, the other, I, I the other day just threw out this thing about, uh, I bet you didn't know that the Bible has a lot to say about that. And she goes, where? And so then I, it gave me a chance. Well, right here. Da -da -da. And, and so you got to kind of like, you know, you can't, if you say Friday night we're going to have a Bible study, it'll never happen. You can't, well, maybe it will in your family. In my family, it don't happen like that. So you've got to kind of do it more impromptu. So have a good week in the Lord, and I'll see you. Okay. There's two other, two other things I want to touch on here. That's the meaning of it. Two other things I want, I want to hit on here about these verses. There's two Bible principles that are found in this verse, or two features of this passage, that are often, I think, misunderstood. And it relates to kind of how you apply the Word of God to your life. And some of you have been, as I said in the prayer, slimed by misapplication of some of these principles. The first one I want to talk about, there's two of them I want to talk about. The first one deals with a particular verse here, and it's, it's verse 3, where Paul says that there's a promise attached to the commandment that says, honor your father and mother, because if you do that, you're going to live well, and you're going to live a long life. Here's the question that arises with that promise. There's really not enough room up here. I mean, this is kind of crowded. Um, so if I knock that thing over before I'm done, you'll know why. It's not my fault. It's Norm's fault. Norm, you're going to take responsibility for anything that goes wrong up here. Okay. The question is this. Is it really the case that everyone who has died young disobeyed their parents? Is it really the case that everyone who obeyed their parents lived long? Because the verse seems to be saying that if you do that, it's, Paul says it's a promise, then you're going to live a long time. There's a lot of verses that are kind of like this. They seem to give unconditional promises which don't line up with our experience. You ever notice that? Uh, Paul says that Christian women will be saved in childbirth, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Does that mean that no Christian woman has ever died giving birth to children? He says that they're going to be saved in childbirth. The prayer of faith, James 5 says, the prayer of faith shall heal the sick. What does that mean when you pray for somebody and they don't get healed? The man of wisdom, Proverbs says, shall have no enemies. 
Does that mean that you have any enemies? You're not very wise? A number of verses in the Psalms say that the righteous shall prosper. Do you ever read this and you just wonder, what? I've never seen the righteous forsaken or a seed out begging for bread, David says. Well, I have. Uh, you know, open up. There's a lot of people that are right. Are you saying that everyone who's poor is, lacks faith or is unrighteous? You go to Calcutta and tell them that. Well, if you just had faith. Raise, oh, here's a great one. You could really get a lot of mileage out of this if you want to slime people. Raise up your child in the ways of the Lord, and when he gets older, he'll never depart from them. So if you raised up a kid who uh, is no longer a believer, you must not have raised them up in the ways of the Lord, because if you did, they would never depart from them. Does that mean, what about the kid's free will? Is it all on the parent's shoulders? What do you do with, with, with verses like that? Uh, prayer face shall save the sick, da-da-da-da-da. One thing you can do with that is to say this, and, and, and this is why this is an important thing I'm getting at here this morning. One way of responding is to say, well, that yes, as a matter of fact, if you do raise up kids in the way of the Lord, they will never depart from them, and that if your kids have departed from them is because you really didn't raise them up in the way of the Lord. That's all there is to it. The Word of God says it. I believe the Word of God. What about you? Or the prayer of faith shall save the sick, shall heal the sick, and so if you're not healed when we pray for you, there's something wrong with you. You must lack faith. Something's deficient about you. Because the Bible says the prayer of faith shall save the sick. By his stripes we are healed. All said and done. No more questions asked. And the righteous shall prosper. And they've never been forsaken. And their seed have never been out begging for bread. It's right there in the word of God. So, the teaching goes, if you just believe it enough, speak it enough, receive it enough, well then you're going to be rich. Drive around in a Cadillac. No reason why a child of the king should not be driving around in a Cadillac. If you've got some kind of 88 horizon with one door that works and there's no radio in it, something's wrong with your faith. <laughs> no one say amen on that one. That's exactly the car. What do you do with that? And see, here's the, here's the deal. If you hold to that teaching, and the people who hold to it are sincere, but I think they're sincerely misreading what, what the Word of God is trying to get at. But if you believe that, there's really no room for compassion. Because you've got to look around, and everyone you see that's sick, everyone you see that's deformed, everyone you see that's in poverty, well, then you've got to believe that it's their own fault. I had a discussion, kind of a debate, actually, with a, with a man one time who, who uh, held to this teaching. We both knew uh, of a Bethel student who was a quadriplegic in a wheelchair, and I said to this man, are you saying, then, that this person who is a believer, that if she really had enough faith to receive it, she could get out of that wheelchair right now? And he said, that's exactly what I'm saying. I said, are you saying then that it was her lack of faith that made her born that way? And he said, no, that was her parents' lack of faith. And see, I recall a verse in the Bible that deals exactly with this. It's in John chapter 9 where they found a blind man. And the disciples said, well, who sinned, the blind man or his parents, that this guy was born blind? And Jesus just completely negates their logic when he says, it's neither this guy nor his parents. You're asking the wrong question. The question is, what can we do to see God glorified here? That's the only question to be asked. It's not a matter of finding someone to blame about that. The world is simply not that simple. When you hold to this kind of a teaching, you start sounding a whole lot like Job's friends who are full of cliches, full of pat answers, full of formulas, while Job is being really verbally abused in his, in his situation. Well, Job, if you just had enough faith, if you're just righteous, if you didn't have sin in your life, you wouldn't have this problem. And that's exactly what this teaching turns into. I know a guy one time who got his neck broken playing rugby, a 20-year-old man, two, two uh, months away from being married, paralyzed from the neck down. And somebody who taught this teaching told him that if he had enough faith, actually he was already going to a place that taught this, if he had enough faith, you could get up and, and, and walk out of that hospital. So now on top of dealing with the very ugly, horrifying reality that he's never going to walk again, at least that's what the doctors are saying, 
On top of that, now, now, now he's blaming himself for it. Well, if I just had enough faith. And see, that stuff sounds so, it, there's something pious about it. We're not going to accept this. We're going to fight against it. We're going to believe that you're going to get up and walk out of this place. And there's a place for that kind of faith. I, I want to encourage that kind of faith. But you can't be so simplistic as to think that, the, that if he doesn't get up and walk, the only reason is because he lacks faith. But that's what he believed. He started believing that, accepting that. And then what finally happens is he says, forget this ticket. It's not my fault. Like I, I would go and visit him sometimes and he'd say, well, Greg, I'm not really paralyzed. This is a symptom of the devil. This is an illusion of the devil. It's a, it, this isn't real. I, you know, if I, as soon as I get enough faith, I'm going to walk out of here. Another teaching that does that is, is Christian science. Mary Beccaretti, same exact teaching, Christian science. There came a time, though, when he finally gave up on that thing and he said, you know what, I have enough faith and it's not happening, and they started to blame God. And that's one of the things that this teaching does is it gets people, when you need God the most, in the middle of the hurt and the pain and the nightmare and the poverty and whatever else, in the middle of that, now you start either blaming yourself or blaming God right when you need to receive God the most. And the people who teach it are sincere, but I believe that they're sincerely wrong. So what do you do with verses like this? What do you do with verses like this? A little background on it is helpful. The background is this. There is, in Jewish culture, as there is in almost every culture, in Jewish culture it's called Semitic Proverbs, um, where they would have guidelines for living, things, sayings of wisdom. The book of Proverbs in the Bible is full of this sort of stuff. Proverbs that help you live. Proverbs that express basic rules about life, the way the world is set up. If, in fact, you're a wise man, you're much less inclined to make enemies than a person who's shooting off their mouth in a foolish way. If, in fact, you raise up your children in the ways of God, it's much less likely that they're going to depart from them. But you know what? they got a free will, and they just might do that anyways. But these are sayings that are often expressed in hyperbolic ways. That is to say, they're stated in the extreme to make them emphatic. We do the same thing in our culture. We say, smoking will kill you. Well, yeah. But then again, there was that Russian guy we read about last year in the paper who lived to be 115, and he said the his formula for living long was to drink a fifth of whiskey a day and to smoke cigars. Now, what do you do with a guy like that? <laughs> we say exercise is the key to long life. Well, that's, you know, that's good. Exercise will help you live long. Exercise and eating well will help you live long. But then again, you hear about people who, this happened just last year in Columbia Marathon, a guy dies doing a marathon. <laughs> or you get hit by a car doing a marathon. Or I know one person who got attacked by a tiger uh, running out in the woods, in, or lion or someplace, I don't know. But anyways, look it. In general, in general, if you want to live long, it's better not to smoke. In general, uh, if you want to live long, it's good to exercise. But you know what? Life, doesn't, life does not conform to our little wise sayings. These are rules that help us live, guidelines that help us live. But you can't, they're, they're, they're prescriptions for how a godly person maybe ought to live, the book of Proverbs and whatnot, but they're not descriptions of how life in every instant pans itself out. And when you take these things that are meant to be general rules of thumb and try to make them into exact formulas, you end up having something that's intended to help people and you end up hurting a lot of people with it. And so you got to, usually in general, if, if, if your way of interpreting the Bible leads you to do something that does not bear godly fruit, probably something's wrong with your interpretation of the Bible. If it, if it has the implication that somebody can't be real with their sickness or, or whatever they're going through, when the Bible puts such a premium on truth, something's wrong with, with the scriptural interpretation. So when it says here that if you obey your, your parents, you're gonna, things are going to go well with you and you're going to live long, that's a, you know, in general, that's a true thing. I almost got killed when I was 12 years old because I disobeyed my father. He said, do not ever go down this hill on a sled. It's very, very dangerous. So I went down this, this hill on, on a sled 
And I ran into a telephone pole on the bottom rung of it, going about 45 miles an hour, totally smashed my insides, almost got killed. I got this great big honking scar all the way up and down my stomach. Um, and and you know, I remind my son of that, you know. It's like, hey, son, I almost got killed and I didn't obey my father. Don't you want to live? <laughs> the Bible says. Okay, here's the second principle. Second principle. How do you apply a verse like this? And I have in mind here to go beyond this verse, but how do you apply all verses that deal with obedience and submission? This is a very important topic, I believe, because very frequently this is misunderstood and misapplied, and it has uh, negative consequences. It's very easy to take a verse like this and use it like a billy club. These verses, verses like this are meant to describe the, what a good relationship that we should be going towards should look like. They are not meant to be prescriptions for how to fix a bad relationship. It's very important to keep that in mind. You can have a 15-year-old daughter, and you can take a verse like this and rip it out of context and just use it sort of as a, a, a credit card almost to leverage your parental authority on and to win fights and to try to fix your daughter who maybe is going through a real tough time, maybe obeying you, maybe because you're being unreasonable, or maybe she's got a lot of weird issues in your life that you need to deal with, and it's a quick fix kind of solution to take this verse and say, well, you know what, the trump card is, you've got to obey me, there it is right now, and now what you've done is you've introduced God into your fight with your daughter, and now she's going to be mad not just at you, but at God. Oh, my God. And so even if she ends up doing it, She's going to end up harboring her anger towards you and harboring her anger towards God. It's not the best way to apply this verse. Everything in the New Testament, dealing with ethics, dealing with relationships, especially dealing with power relationships, someone having authority over someone, so important to hear this. They're predicated on a certain type of relationship that you have. And it's so important to understand that that's what lies behind these passages and to take them in their proper context. Let's back up a little bit. What is the context that Paul is teaching here? You can't just rip a verse out and say, I got the billy club, you got to obey me. What's the context here? The context is this. You go all the way back to Ephesians chapter 4. The first three chapters of Ephesians tells us who we are in Christ. The last three chapters tell us how to live out the Christian life. Those of you who have been with us for a while have seen that, that uh, theme play itself out. In Ephesians chapter 4, what you get is this. Paul is saying, because of who you are on the inside, live it out on the outside. Because of your identity in Christ Jesus, let your behavior, let your attitudes, let your life look a certain kind of a way. And then he gets to Ephesians chapter 5 where he really begins to hone it in and he says, you know what, here's what your life should look like. Christ's character is inside of you, therefore your life should model Jesus Christ. Imitate Christ. And he says, live a life of love. Live a life of love. Just like Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Now, after that, he goes out and he starts giving some ethical teachings. This is so important. He starts giving ethical teachings. He starts saying things like this. Abstain from sexual immorality. You want to imitate Christ? Abstain from sexual immorality. Abstain from cruel joking. Uh, abstain from greed. And he lists a number of other things that believers who want to imitate Jesus Christ, who want to live out the character of Christ in their life, he tells them how they should live. Those teachings make a whole lot of sense and resonate very well to a believer who has a passion to imitate Christ. You want to imitate Christ? These verses will tell you how to do it. But if a person does not want to imitate Christ, these verses don't even apply. You can take these verses and try to manipulate people's behavior and try to get them to stop doing a certain kind of activity that you don't think they should be doing. But you know what? If their heart's not regenerate and they don't have a heart that wants to obey Christ, 
You have not improved their lot in life by getting their behavior to change. This is why I really don't believe it's effective for Christians to go out and try to change non-Christians' behavior, to try to get them to act Christian. Martin Luther saw this, because even if you get a non-Christian to act Christian, you can get a law that prohibits their behavior. Are they any more saved for that reason? Are they any more holy for that reason? Are they any closer to God for that reason? All you've done is you've just concealed the fact that they need God, because now they're acting like they were holy, but they're not. So often we believers get the cart before the horse. We think it's our job to tell a sinner, to, preach a, to, to try to get them out of their sin. You've got a neighbor who's gay, and the first thing that's out of your mouth is you ought to, shouldn't be living that way. When in fact the one thing that's going to make them not want to live that way is Jesus Christ in their life. But until that gets there, it doesn't do any good trying to manipulate their behavior by coming up with verses out of the Bible. We change it into a legal book to try to pound people's behavior to get into conformity with our expectations. But it just doesn't work that way. And then Paul deals with relationships. The first relationship he deals with is marriage. Very important one here, marriage. So important to put this stuff in its context. And in the course of talking about marriage... Among those who want to imitate Jesus Christ, he says this in verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands. Now, you can take that verse, take it out of context. Here it is. Wives, submit to your husbands. That's all there's to be said about right there. Huh? And you divorce it out of a relationship in which that makes sense and is actually beautiful. And now what you've got is a nice billy club to beat someone into submission. What sometimes happens is they, you'll take that verse out and now a person thinks that this is sort of, this is the way to, instead of being a prescription for a godly relationship that we're aspiring to, it becomes a description of how to fix a relationship. In other words, it becomes a way that husbands can try to fix their wife, and fixing means get them into submission. And now you've got God on your side. This is your master card. You don't need to talk through problems. You've got God on your side. I say we're going to move, we're going to move. You've got to submit. The Bible says it right there. It becomes a billy club. And if they don't go along with it, you've got a way of shaming them. If you really love God, if you really believe the Bible, why then you just submit. That's all there is to it right there. So it, it, it's a, we end up getting a God megaphone to our voice. It helps us shout a little bit louder. Helps us flex our muscles a little bit bigger. Helps us settle all issues. Because we've got the verse, the one verse. Bam, right there. Submit, 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 submit. You see, we, we miss a couple of things when we do that. We miss, first of all, the verse right before it, which says, husbands and wives submit to one another. What about that verse? How come that's not a billy club? And then verse 25, he says, husbands, you love your wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. While, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how you should love your wife. And see, here's the thing. If you put it in its context, Paul's talking about He's talking to people who have a heart to imitate Jesus Christ. I want to imitate Jesus Christ. How do I do that? Paul says, here's how you do it. If you're married, you want to imitate Jesus Christ? Imitate his marriage. Now, what does his marriage look like? Well, he came down to earth. He died on the cross for the church. Husbands, do that for your wife. That's how you submit to her. Wives, here's how you submit to your husbands. You respond like the church responds to Jesus Christ. It is a beautiful, gorgeous, empowering thing that does not dehumanize anybody. It does not beat up anybody. It strengthens things. But when you rip out a, an obedience verse out of its context, out of the beautiful relationship that's presupposed there, far from helping your marriage, this is going to help ruin your marriage. It doesn't build a relationship. It destroys a relationship. And what was meant to be a very godly thing turns into a very ugly thing because it's ripped out of context. Here's another example of this. I'm going to roll here. And some of you are... I know, I know some of you can relate to this one. Hebrews 13, 17. Some of you have had that verse quoted to you. I have. It says, obey your pastor. Obey your pastor. 
Obey your spiritual leaders. There it is. Obey. Here's another verse. 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 6. Touch not God's anointed. Ah, what a verse. I have seen that verse used in some of the most incredible situations. You got a problem with me? Touch not God's anointed. <laughs> you disagree with me? You question my integrity? I don't know what happened to the $6,000 in this church fund, but touch not God's anointed. <laughs> you see, and you got a verse now that... Think, you guys, think of it like this. If I am a person who's got a very needy soul, a very needy ego, I feel really little, and I want to feel big. If I feel like that, then I get life out of having power over people. If I can, get, if I can control people, manipulate people, get them to look up to me, Man, that feels good. It's a charge of adrenaline I just need. And there's a lot of people out there that are like that. I just need to control. They're control freaks, manipulation freaks. They've got to be in charge. They've got to be the boss. If I have that in my soul, I'm very, very needy. There's one or two professions I can go into that are really going to make me happy. One is politics. And the other one is religion. And if on top of that I need to feel self-righteous and kind of holy, and I need people to look up to me, well, then I've just ruled out the, the one, and now I'm down to religion. And I got a verse like this. Oh, I got God on my side. I got the God master, literally, master credit card. Yeah, the word of God says you've got to obey me. You've got to obey me if you're godly because I give account for you. And now, and this is, these are not hypothetical instances. If I say that you need to ask me what movies you're going to go to, then you need to ask me what movies you're going to go to. And if you don't, it's an act of rebellion, not against me, but against God. And, I, and, and I'll tell you, you know, maybe you, uh, you should uh, ask me for permission if you're going to hold a Bible study. And you need to ask me for permission if you're going to, th this is the, I know an actual case where this happened, if you're going to have a party of some sort, I need to first okay it. And the friends you keep, and if you're going to date, if you're going to date, well, you've got to ask me because, you know, I'm the man of God and I've got to give an account for you. So uh, you need to, you know, before you date someone, you need to ask my permission first and, and things of that sort. And you get a person who really gets a charge out of being in control and you give them a verse like this and you say whatever you say is of God and you are just asking for tremendous, tremendous trouble because now you got a person who's not trying to feed the sheep. you got a person who's trying to feed on the sheep. And he's getting life by their ability to control people and in the name of God is heaping a whole bunch of slime on people. Jesus had his harshest words for people that fell into that category. That are... God hates it when people use his name to megaphone their own voice. God's on my side. If you ever got to say that, if you ever got to say that, then probably he's not. If, I ever, if someone's got to say, I'm the pastor, you've got to listen to what I say, that's the best proof in the world that you're not dealing with a real pastor. If someone's got to say, I've got the authority, I've got the anointing, I've got the power, I've got the control, then very clearly this person does not have the anointing, does not have the gift, does not have the position. God's not there because if he was, you could see it. You could see it. It'd be an obvious thing. But Jesus says the people who put themselves in this position and are into power control, he says, you wolves. You're in sheep's clothing, but you feed on the wolves. You're wolves in sheep's clothing. Scott Peck says that the most evil people in the world hide out in Christian ministry. Now, I don't know if you can prove that or not, but there's something that I suspect might, there might be some truth there because it's a perfect cover. It's a perfect setup. People believe you. You're in a power position, and it is just open for abuse. So Jesus says, you wolves, you blind leaders of the blind, you whited sepulchers are so polished on the outside, but inside you're rotting corpses, your bones. You heap 
you heap uh, yoke on people when you ought to be taking yokes off of people. His most vitriolic words were spoken not to the prostitutes and harlots or whatever. He was spoken to the religious leaders. He gets really ticked off by that sort of thing. And if you're in a situation where there's a person who's, who's demanding the obedience, who doesn't have the God credentials but has maybe the world's credentials, they got an REV, how to translate Greek and they've been through seminary, and therefore they're the pastor. And they're using this position to exercise control over you. You've got to do one of two things. You either confront them in the name of God and hope that they'll change, or you've got to get out of there. But one thing that's sure, and that is that you're not going to be growing healthy under that ministry because they're feeding off of you. They're feeding off of you. And it's a dangerous kind of a situation. But see, you take a verse like this and put it in its biblical context. In a biblical context, everything is about relationship. In a biblical context, whether or not you're a pastor... It's not a matter of what seminary you went through and whether you can translate Greek or not and whether you've taken a course on church administration and you've got an REV in front of your name. From a biblical perspective, nothing but nothing could be more irrelevant than that. What is relevant is this. Do you, in fact, have it? It's reality. Forget the position. Do you have the reality? And if you get a person who's got a pastor's heart, a shepherd's heart, whether it's a shepherd of a house church or a shepherd of a congregation of 10,000, they got a shepherd's heart. They want to imitate Jesus by laying down their life for sheep. They don't want to feed on people. They want to give to people. They get off on empowering people to do ministry. You get a person like that and a person who's gifted in that area. And then you read a verse like this, obey your pastors. There's something in the heart of people who aren't pastors that says yes to that. But they don't say yes to any pastor. They say yes to this pastor. Yeah, he's got authority. And this woman, she's got authority in that area. And there's a naturalness to it. How do I imitate God? Well, here's one way. If you've got a pastor who's imitating God and you want to imitate God, you follow them. You follow them. That doesn't mean that they're above criticism or anything like that, but there's a general sense of I trust this person because I see what they're about. They don't need to tell me what they're about. I see that. There's a reality there. But you take this verse out of its context, and a lot of you have had it taken out of that context, and it becomes a billy club that is abusive, and people leave church bleeding when it's used in that way. And so it is with all the submission and obedience verses in the Bible. They're predicated on the reality of a relationship that wants to imitate Jesus Christ. They're predicated on the idea that people have it in their heart to follow Christ. Concerning this passage about children, there's a place when kids are young where you've got to just lay the law down. They've, they're still trying to get the basic concept of what life's about inside of them, so you lay down do's and don'ts and you enforce that, and you tell them you have to obey, and that's a proper thing. In fact, I think it's cruel if you don't do that. But as they grow and mature, that's got to become internalized. And the way it becomes internalized in a healthy way is by having a relationship with them that they honor you. So that honoring isn't, you must honor me. Honoring is a natural thing that you, in fact, are honorable. You, in fact, are respectful. And they want to obey because they've seen that, as a matter of fact, you have their best interests in life. You imitate Christ in his life towards them. That's what earns credibility to say, follow my teaching here. You know I love you. I'm not getting off on this. I'm just... Have your best interests in mind. These are all verses like this. All the ethics of the Bible and all the obedience stuff in the Bible. It's not about fixing bad relationships. It's about prescribing a relationship that we want to be moving to. And when they're taken out of that context, they become abu abusive. The way to fix relationships, and I'll close with this. You don't fix relationships by shouting louder, let alone using God's name as you shout louder. God's on my side. That will not fix anything, even if you do win. 
Whether you're talking about a marriage, whether you're talking about kids, whether you're talking about a, a broken relationship between a pastor and a church. Shouting, using God's name, I, that will be counterproductive. You bring God into this thing, you might get conformity because you'll scare people, but it does not bring health at all. The way to build broken relationships. There may be a lot of issues you've got to work through and, 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 and maybe the counseling needs to happen and, and whatnot. But what will fuel the broken relationship to be healed is again just imitating Jesus Christ. And how did Jesus Christ act when there was a relationship that needed to be broken? Did he shout real loud? Did, did he say, I'm God and I get my way? I vote this way and you must obey? Did he stand up there and just flex his muscle and scare us into submission? No. He became a man. He died on the cross. He, he bore the brunt of the pain. He gave all for the sake of love. If you want to fix a broken relationship, you don't insist on the legal verses, turn the Bible into a legal thing, and taint God's reputation doing it. You lay down your life. That's what gives you the credibility to say anything else. In a marriage, what builds a relationship is laying down your life in love. For a congregation, you got friction there? Whatever else needs to happen, you got to lay down your life. you got to lay down your life. The person in power has to lay down their life. And with regard to children, Daryl, we want to come up here and we'll, we'll close with a song. With regard to children, what gives you any credibility to say anything is that they see demonstrated the love of Jesus Christ in your life. You lay down. That does the opposite of what shouting does. Shouting builds resentment. That's why Paul says, do not egg on or provoke or exacerbate your children. Rather, raise them up in the way of the Lord. The best way to do that is by giving them something to imitate. You show what Christ-like love is all about. Amen.